Between lightning and thunder, three seconds the gap. A warm candle glow keeps this wood room from black. My cat, she sleeps on an old clippy mat, purring out echoes of faint pitter pat. Hello. Welcome to the Writer's Perennial Porridge Pot, podcast episode 9. Mary Kane from Aberdeen's Lemon Tree Writers Group is the guest. I'm your presenter, Roger Meacham. First, let me announce a change in the podcast format. You will, as usual, hear a 10-minute piece of fiction or fact. This will now be followed by a freewheeling conversation, a little about the writing, but mainly thoughts inspired by the writing, especially thoughts about places, You might almost call this a staycation podcast because, as well as listening to a fascinating piece of work, only fascinating pieces are allowed, you'll also hear facts about parts of other countries, anywhere in the world. People who've lived there, wildlife, sites, history, culture. We're beginning with Cornwall. Mary will be explaining later why, if there's a mine in the area where you live, You'll find a Cornishman at the bottom of it. But first, you'll hear her reading a tale from her own family history. The event you're about to hear is set near Bodmin Moor in Cornwall. Losing Dad Twice Andrew Gregg says in his book At the Lock of the Green Corrie There are places and times on this earth when the ground, as it were, grows thin and the dead arise of themselves. Gone days, dead parents, lost friends, old loves rise around us as an escort, an entourage, to provoke counsel and console. As we drive or lie with a book at the day's end, we may glimpse them at the edge of vision. They must be spoken with if we are to remain honest. When I read this to my husband, he said, I like it. But I don't like that quote. I often delete what he doesn't like, but in this case, I haven't. I like the way those words support my whimsy, my flimsy grasp on the bare-naked truth, and the idea that there is the other to embrace and play with when we need it. So, to tell the tale of losing Dad twice. Normally, you only lose one parent once. But in our unremarkable Cornish family, we managed to lose our dad twice. For two years after he died, dad's ashes had remained around the young copper beech tree he had planted. We found a note in his handwriting with those instructions. It startled us because we hardly ever saw his copper plate handwriting and we didn't talk about him dying while he lived, only about him getting better at 90 from his chronic heart condition. Now, when we visit Mum, she asks us to go and check on the tree as she can't get out much. Maybe she really means check up on Dad. And she always adds, make sure the plaque is all right. That cheesy plastic remembering a loved one plaque she bought that makes us cringe. So we go and check give a sidelong glance to the tree and come away quickly. 
Perhaps we're a little embarrassed at the mawkish words on the plaque and not quite sure what to think or do by the tree. Last June, I went up. The plaque was nicely hidden in the long grass and the copper beech was growing on, a good six feet tall in the shelter of the surrounding hazels. Job done. Last month, it was Peter's turn. He went up as usual, and as he rounded a corner into the thicket, expecting to see, but didn't see, the tree. Nothing was there, save a shallow, shocking, earthy pit. No tree and no blessed plaque. Gone. Nothing there. An exhumation. The copper beech tree had been dug up and taken away. Tire tracks leading from the scene were the only clue. My dad Arthur liked copper beech trees, but they were hard to get established on that exposed Cornish farm up on the edge of Bobmin Moor. He'd lost one or two over the years, so he decided to wait until there was more shelter. He loved his trees. He thought they were more reliable than the milking cows he tended all his working life. He was brought up in the nearby wooded valley and the fields he walked as a boy were bluebell, stitchwort and campion hedged, linked by ancient Cornish mossy lanes. He married Mum and her small farm just a mile away but up on the hill. Windy or shrouded in mist, its straight hedges were built from quarried stone taken from moorland tin mine buildings. The only trees were stunted, leaning away from the prevailing weather. He began planting trees up there in his fifties. There was one for my wedding in 1972, and others when the country was saying, plant a tree in 73. He went on to fill first the one-acre plat, and then the three-acre entrance field, with a mixture of native trees and shrubs, rowan and wayfaring tree, hazel and hawthorn, alder and slow, ash and holly. He enjoyed walking round them and pruned them with the secateurs he carried. He made bonfires that spat with a thorny fury whilst they tidied up. In his later years, he tottered and doddered through his groves, making little beaten pathways of attendance around them and through them. He would stop, steady his behind against his shooting stick, making sure it wasn't hurting his increasingly tender piles, and spreading his feet wide for stability, he would snip off small twigs and branches. He used to say he wasn't in the business of growing gooseberry bushes. Some of his trees, as a result, have a startled look, bare trunk up to the point where he could reach, with a shaggy lollipop top. Towards the end of his life, he couldn't collect up the trimmings to burn. They were left to make a tangle in the grass, pinned to the ground by the cheeky brambles which looped in from the edges of the field. But in 20 years, he had created a maturing wood alongside the footpath up to the moor. He was happy to see the paths he made used by people that he knew, like Mrs Hawkin, who took her dog up to the moor before her hip went. He would leave a bowl of water under a hedge in case her dog was thirsty. And Mrs Congdon, who went up to the moor in summer to pick a punnet of whortleberries. 
The trees suffered a bit from bored schoolboys on their cross-country runs and rabbits and deer that chewed or rubbed the bark. But I don't think he would have imagined that he himself would be lost and spirited away. How did the tree thieves manage it? At dead of night, cloth-capped and capable with van and spades? Was it a snatch and grab with young, strong men in hoodies pulling and tearing at the roots? Was the tree hastily squeezed into a pot for a quick cash sale in the morning? Or stolen to order to be replanted in someone's garden? Where would they have taken the booty, with Dad's calcic remains clinging to the roots? I imagine those little fragments of bone rattling along in a van, with his favourite tree and some of that poor moorland soil he tried to earn a living from. A strange trio. He always said his soil was thin because most of it was being farmed by the farmers down in the valley where the rain had washed it. He would have enjoyed a trip in a heavy vehicle though. He didn't get to travel much. The only time he left his familiar territory was during the war when he drove an army cook's truck across France from D-Day landings to the relief of Paris. One night in France, delivering hot food to the front lines, Shells were exploding around. He says he jumped out and hid behind a dead horse. Another time, he quickly dug a slit trench to lie in when the battle got too close. He used to say you can dig a trench quick when you're young and frightened. He was good at making himself scarce. He was a man who moved slowly, carefully. He fitted right in, unnoticed. And every man in an earth-coloured twill jacket... Mum couldn't find him in Woolworths on a rare shopping trip to Plymouth when she had us children gathered ready to leave. Where were you? She said, flustered, when he appeared. Over there, he said, over there where I could see you. High up on the farm in his retirement from active work, he would sit in the lee of a hedge and look out at the land and sea. Under Skylark Song, he would balance his field glasses on the fork of his blackthorn thumbstick. He had lost the leafy privacy of his valley when he moved up the hill in 1950, but he gained a panoramic view. Without leaving home, he could see what was going on, what was happening. Cricket in the recreation field, the Ginster pasty lorries leaving amongst fragrant onion-smelling factory exhaust, traffic on the road to St Melian, the shining white tent shapes of the china clay pit spoil heaps. The Eddystone lighthouse would have been a speck in the distance, across the rift where the liner valley cuts through the Cornish hills. That same view would have been seen from the Copper Beach, if it had been allowed to grow and rise above the hazels. I'd enjoyed imagining his ashes that we had spread around the beech tree, slowly making their way down into the ground and then up into the trunk and then branching out and into the cellular structure, into the twigs, the fluttering leaves. He would have come, become part of that copper beach, the ultimate camouflage. Dad, in a new shape, reliable and enduring, with his grand view of the county he lived his life in. But we've all had to move on, And even Dad has had to get used to a new horizon. Bye, Dad, wherever you are.
Mary, thanks. Losing Dad twice. You tell your tale with a wry tone. I only hope that the Copper Beach is thriving in its new home, wherever that is, and your dad will in some sense be a part of it. We were chatting as we prepared this podcast. We talked about tree spirits. And I looked these up. There's a whole ethnology of tree spirits. Dryads are associated with oak, and so are different from the tree nymphs associated with laurel. There is a Scottish male tree spirit called the gillydew, D-H-U. Please, if there are any Gaelic listeners, please let me have the correct pronunciation. The gillydew in Scotland is associated with birch woods in the northwest highlands of Scotland, and is said to be wild in character, but gentle with children. A gentle giant, perhaps. But Mary, let's begin with why you chose to tell a family story in this way, not straightforwardly, matter-of-factly, but with just a touch of magical realism. Um, as, as the years have gone on, the thing that interests me is how we pass family story on to our next generations. Mm. And in one undigestible lump, it doesn't seem very productive. So what I've tried to do is uh, find a little nub and then knit a little something around it. That's not a very good metaphor, but a little something which is immediately, it, it's, got, it's got a little something to it, a, a little emotional resonance. And then it might be in the middle of a life story, but then we just weave a little something to set it in context. So this was losing dad twice, where the simple story was that somebody nicked the tree that we'd put his ashes around. But if you add a little magic to it, there it was on a Cornish hill within sight of Bodmin Moor and Dartmoor. Uh, And if you think of the ashes as part of dad, who was born and brought up there and hardly ever left, and then suddenly he was taken away without his permission, it becomes, a, it becomes a story. Quite a story. In fact, Mary, before we talk about place, and in particular Cornwall, I can't leave this alone, this notion of tree spirits and the way in which you, we find stories all over the world about people changing into something else. A great theme in the Harry Potter books, of course. I've long been fascinated by the Bernini sculpture of Apollo and Daphne. It's housed in Rome, a beautiful sculpture, that I've only ever seen in photographs, Daphne is changing into a laurel tree, so she's a wood nymph. It's an old story, I think. It is an old story. It's, it's a little bit like the story of the, the stone uh, up at Benahi near us, where she's turned into a stone as she's running from the devil, who she accidentally promised herself to when he promised a ridiculous thing of making a path up to the summit. And when, of course, he turns out he was the devil and she only noticed as he turned away and she saw his cloven hooves, but she'd entered into a contract. So the next day, the only thing she could do was run and the gods were so sorry for her, they turned her into a stone. Yes, a woman running and being turned into a tree or a stone. Normally, you need intervention for turning into something because it's hard. I mean, there was the block of salt, which is another one. Um, because she turned to look back. But usually you have the intervention from the good God to turn you into something to save you. 
we used to think that we weren't separate from the natural world, but we seem to have decided to separate ourselves off and, of course, use unmercifully the timber of trees. So we don't want to think they've got personalities. We like trees because they do outlast humans. They they stay for hundreds of years and we're always looking for longer life, aren't we, as humans? Did you know that the largest organism on the planet is a tree? Well, the aspen tree sets up a community and it, under, it spreads underneath the ground and then pops up with another one. And so somewhere, probably Canada, might be the States, this aspen is vast, vast sea of aspen. But it's all one organism if you were to look at its DNA. Yes, I think this is mentioned in Peter Volumben's book, The Hidden Life of Trees. He talks about the quaking aspen, which has leaves that shake or tremble to the slightest breath of wind. They do this so that both sides of the leaf can harvest the sunlight. And there's an aspen tree in Fish Lake National Forest, Utah. It covers more than a 100 acres. It's taken thousands of years to grow. So, like you say, DNA shows it is one organism, one vast organism. I'm going to move on from this, Mary, though the subject is one close to my heart. But let's get to place, and in particular Cornwall, where you were brought up. Yes, Cornwall is where I was brought up. And although, I, and I think I have a great attachment to Cornwall, but that attachment, once you have an attachment, I would say you can then transmit it. And so I now have an attachment to Scotland, and there are similarities like the Granite Hills. Um and the trees, although the trees are much nicer up here than they are on Bodmin Moor. And so I weave all the elements. I think it was um, Gregory Bateson, the anthropologist, who talks about everything being connected. And I like that idea. And I, I, uh, listening to nature writers, we, we, we weave all sorts of things in from the bird song to the pebbles on the beach, to the characters, to the view out of the window, to the actual window. The connection idea resonates with me, and we'll come back to how we focus on this or that. But as to Cornwall, I know very little about the place, apart from the fact that it's surrounded on three sides by water and used to be a difficult place to reach. Tell me something surprising, please. Mm. Did you know that arsenic is one of the commonest things? Quite close to where I was brought up, and of course it hasn't affected me at all or my brain. Haha. <laughs> um, they had enough arsenic to kill the entire world's population. It's a white powder, and do you remember um, people like Queen Elizabeth I would put it on their face? Yes. Wasn't it wasn't a good idea, Roger? Let's not do it. I certainly won't touch arsenic, Mary, and. You tell me, tongue-in-cheek, something about Cornish mines? Did you know that at the bottom of every pit around the world, you can find a Cornishman? There was a, a huge drop in tin prices, possibly mentioned in Poldark as well. Uh, so the poor old tin miners who had this skill, as my father used to say, we're hard rock miners, Mary, not soft. Now, soft rock mining is coal mining. You have to put up pit props. That, that is that is for weaklings, <laughs> uh, soft rock. 
hard rock mining, you blast your way through the tunnels and you find your little coals everywhere. It's easy to find, but tin, they said the hard rock miners had the skill. And of course, that was the same as gold mining. You didn't have much gold in Cornwall. Did you know that every tin miner kept a little quill feather just here? Because a quill is a very early plastic thin pot, a bit like a test tube, but tiny. And you have a little cork in the top or another bit of quill. And you didn't tell the boss you'd found a bit of gold. Fool's gold, you knew what it was. So you found the real gold and you put it in there because it was only tiny bits. And then that was your little bit of uh, pension. Yes, uh, gold mining, it went, where did it go? Was it Australia, New Zealand, and California? Not sure the order. And the boys of Cornwall, like any boys, would protect each other and invite, if they found it was a good living, they'd send home, and then another brother would come out or a friend. And then, um, because there wasn't, if you, if you were ill or injured, you couldn't get um, any um, free, free hospital treatment or um, pension, they protected each other, so they sort of swore that they would support one another. With all that mining, Cornwall must have been at the forefront when it came to the invention of steam engines in the late 18th century? Yes. Camborne, of course, was the centre of the technology for steam because they needed steam for the tin mines as well as for a, a future entire industry of transport which they hadn't thought of they were just trying to get water out of the flooded mines because Cornwall had an annoying habit for flooding all the tin mines as soon as you got down below the surface. I just hadn't realised that Cornwall had a place in the history of steam engines. Um, I've been reading now that the man who first put steam engines on rails was a tall strong Cornishman described by his schoolmaster as obstinate and inattentive. Richard Trevithick. He learnt his craft in the Cornish tin mines and built his Penny Darren tram road engine for a line in South Wales. Um, until then, the coal wagons had been pulled by horses. But I read that on February the 21st in 1804, his pioneering steam engine hauled 10 tonnes of iron and 70 men, nearly 10 miles. Prior to that, I read that he used a steam engine to haul a small number of people up a hill in Cornwall, but not on rails. There's a song, isn't there? Going up Camborne Hill, going down. Going up Camborne Hill, going down. The horses stood still. The wheels went around, going up Camborne. That is the first steam engine going up the hill at Camborne. Mary, there are lots of names of famous Cornish people. And one is William Golding, the writer who's well known for Lord of the Flies. But the book of his that I like best is his novella, Envoy Extraordinary, where an inventor presents a Roman emperor with his wonderful invention, a steam engine. And of course, Golding was born in Cornwall. Now, John Wasley is another of, and I knew of him because of my hometown, a town full of Methodist chapels, Stoke-on-Trent. I read that in 1773, John Wesley preaches to 32,000 people at Gwennep Pit. He does, the Wesleyans, yep, yes. There was the um, Gwennep Pit is, a, is an outdoor 
natural amphitheatre where he preached uh, down near Redruth. And here I'm calling a halt. Mary and I went on to talk about Paul Dog and Daphne du Maurier, pirates, and a great role model for all women, Captain Nancy Blackett. Until next time, goodbye. Our intro and exit music is the song Rain by Martin Stevenson, sung here by Helen McCookery Book. Details on the Lemontry Writers website. Thank you. My subconscious and I are back on speaking terms. He's sending me colors and beautiful words. And far, far away are the harsh city folk. I'm surrounded by country, surrounded by night as the rain. Down on the yard Rain